This podcast from the Knight Commission on Intercollegiate Athletics is a recording from the Summit on the Collegiate Athlete Experience at George Washington University on January 30th, 2006. This segment is titled Sociological, Leadership, and Behavioral Issues Involving Student-Athletes and features Joanne Belknap, Professor of Sociology and Women's Studies at the University of Colorado, Don McPherson, Executive Director of the Sports Leadership Institute at Adelphi University, Jamal Cornelius, a current football student-athlete at the University of Florida, and discussion among Knight Commission and panelists. For more information about the Knight Commission, visit www.knightcommission.org. We will begin with... uh... Joanne Belknap, who is a professor of sociology and women's studies at the uh, University of Colorado. Thank you very much. Thank you. Um, Thank you for inviting me here. And I also feel like I'm going to work really hard to cram this into 10 minutes um, and hope that it doesn't move too quickly. Uh, The main thing that I wanted to communicate today is that climate matters and looking at sexual abuse and college athletics that it's really important to look at, if we look across different universities, we can see some differences. Even within the same university, some of my own research and some other research that just looked at the Greek system, not the athletic system, but even on one campus, there can be and is huge variation across the fraternities about whether there's a low, minimal to no risk of rape to medium risk of rape to very high risk of rape. And, um, and and some of my research with police departments on domestic violence is the same thing. Within the same large metro police department, the districts varied on how much victim blaming there was in domestic violence cases. So if we look at just the idea of, for example, fraternities, that two studies have found, one of them mine, that you can have fraternities where literally there are no rapes ever reported and ones where they seem to be routinely every weekend or so. That suggests that climate matters, that what a particular institution within an institution values, expects, can make a huge difference. And the good news to me about that is we can change climate, and the administration can, um, and athletic departments and all sorts of different people at colleges can do that. Um, I'm at the University of Colorado, which I'm sure everybody knows has had an extremely high-profile um, reports of rape um, and sexual abuses Um, starting in 1997 with a high school student that was at a um, football recruiting party, a woman high school student reported being raped, and then Lisa Simpson in December 2001. Um, The criminal charges against the individual football players were dropped in 2002, but then in um, December 2002, Simpson filed a Title IX lawsuit, and two more women joined her in December um, 2003 and January 2004, um, Katie Hanida, who was the only woman ever on the football team, reported being raped by a fellow player in 2004. Um, the Title IX suit was dismissed in 2005, but it's under appeal. Um, so that's an abbreviated version. The thing that I am most interested in, both as a member, a faculty member at the University of Colorado, but somebody whose passion is stopping violence against women, um, is that I want to focus beyond what an individual athlete's responsibility is and what the Title IX lawsuit is about. What are college campuses doing, whether it's the president, chancellor, the athletic director, the coach, what are they doing to create the correct climate to prevent the rapes to start and sexual abuses from in the first place and to have things prepared, strategies for once, if they are reported, and hopefully they they won't be, but... um, What are they doing to do that? Because I think University of Colorado dismally failed at all of these things, and that's why it ended up in the situation it did with the Title IX lawsuit. And here, one of the things I've talked about is what is the responsibility of the university not only to keep women safe on campus, but what is their responsibility to the athletes? What does it mean when you have recruit parties where you have 17- and 18-year-old young men come, they're with fellow um, team members that, that, that are... And, and saying, we're going to go to this party, and look, we're having group sex with all these these women here. Um, what is that saying to football players about what the expectation about them is? And I just think this is so vitally important if we clearly want to address sexual abuse and other kinds of intimate partner abuse and violence against women. 
we cannot escape what the university's responsibility is in promoting a responsible atmosphere and what their responsibilities, again, not only to potential victims, which is everybody, but to potential offenders, which is also everybody. We can all sexually abuse and we can all be victims of sexual abuse. Um, I put together this grid, and it's not perfect, I, um, but one of the things that I was really struck with with what's been going on with the University of Colorado is that once a sexual assault is reported, that there's all these different members of a community that are going to be affected and have different roles. And I have these um, arrows here. Um, and again, this isn't perfect, the size of this or the arrows, but I, I was just thinking about who has access to whom, who has information, who, who can go and say this thing or that thing. And I, to me, one of the biggest problems with all of this is just how um, isolated and insular the athletics departments often are, that a lot of times the faculty and staff and the non-student and the non-athlete students feel like they are really excluded from that um, and that it's, it makes it very difficult to have what should be a community of people responding to whatever the issues are. And so um, who has a voice and who doesn't have a voice um, becomes extremely important here about who then defines what it means. Um, so there's all these different things going on here, how the media represents it, who do they call, how do they report it. Um, what does the university do? Um, it sh um, about, I think it was a year ago, um, Gordy Bailey, a fraternity um, member being recruited to fraternity on, on campus, was hazed and um, died of alcohol poisoning the next morning. And it's just, it's interesting to look at that the university got mad at the other fraternity members for what they called lawyer, lawyering it up, but that's exactly what they did when the sexual assaults were reported at the university. They closed down, they didn't talk to anybody, they didn't, um, except for lawyers. Um, so some of the mistakes, I think, that can be grouped in are not having prevention strategies in place and then a lack of strategies to respond when, reports, when um, sexual abuses and rapes are reported. Um, so that whether it's the women reporting the sexual abuses and or their parents, what do they have in place? At um, One of the things that really irked me about the University of Colorado is all of the faculty are required to take sexual harassment trainings periodically, and the main thing that they pound into us is that if somebody reports something, we are required to report it, even if we don't think it happened, if we don't believe the person, even if the person asks us not to report it, we are required to report it. So at the same time we were having all of this training, this same did not hold for people in the athletics department or in the key administration at the university, which was extremely upsetting to a lot of faculty members about having these different rules depending on who you were at the university, whether or not it was indeed ethical and legal and moral and so on to report it. Um, the way to deal with the media, the public, the legal parties also, I think universities really need to have things in place about what are we going to do um, when sexual abuse is reported. When Lisa Simpson first reported being raped um, in, in 2001, the very next day, um, Gary Barnett, the coach of the football team, what he said in the paper was, we're not changing how we're doing anything. It was not, these are horrible charges, I hope they're not true, we're going to look into them the response was, we're not changing how we're doing anything. And I think that message just got carried through for a really long time. And I really firmly believe, had the University of Colorado responded in a more appropriate way with more appropriate investigation of taking responsibility, the Title IX lawsuit never would have happened. Which, even if, you, if it is dismissed and doesn't get, um, it's under appeal, it has had a huge impact on the University of Colorado, on um, the administration, on the athletics department, on the uh, students, on the athletes. The ch in addition, these cha huge changes included four very high up people, um, the chancellor, the president resigning, and um, the um, athletic director, and then as I'm sure everybody knows, Gary Barnett being fired um, most recently in just this past December. I think the positive responses that CU has made um, include the changing the recruiting guidelines, even though they kept saying at the beginning there's nothing wrong with the recruiting guidelines. They changed the unsupervised hours, how many nights the athletes were staying when they were being recruited. Um, reconfiguring athletics to respond to central administration like the rest of the campus did. And I phone 
one of the things he did immediately upon coming here was organizing pizza lunches with the faculty, saying, hey, we want to work with you. We want to we want to do what's best for the um, student athletes. We want to do what's best for you. We, and all the faculty were saying this was so unusual to have this kind of connection and this voice and this communication that had never happened before. Um, the preventive strategies include implementing training for athletics, coaches, staff, and students, establishing consistent expectations with policies, um, and ensuring everyone across campus is aware of the policies and that there are actually consequences, because without all of these things going on, they're not going to work. Uh, one of the things that we did, I did with two other women um, this past fall was did a training, and we called it Establishing Consensual Sex. We didn't want to say this is an anti-rape or a anti-sexual abuse program. We wanted to make it more positive, but again, that this was required by everybody. And we, one of the things that is very important in this is that the experts on the topic, I actually think it would be really good. We had three women. I think it would be good to have it gender diverse as well. Um, but to have it racially diverse, and I, I feel like I can't do justice to this, but I, it is so important to remember that the whole history of rape legislation and responses to sexual abuse in the United States are very tied up with racism. That even today, it is very different to be an African-American man versus a white man or Latina man to be charged with sexual abuse. It is very different depending on what the race of the woman charging the abuse is. And that the racial consequences really vary for all of this. And when we were doing this training, this was really, and I, we cannot talk about sexual abuse without talking about the intersection of racism with how all of this gets portrayed, particularly when we look at who's on college campuses and we compare the representation of students of color that are non-athletes and athletes and what the assumptions and stereotypes people start making are. We have to take that seriously and it makes a lot of people really uncomfortable to talk about it. But what happens when there aren't very many African-American men on campus and the ones who are are largely in athletics departments and what the assumptions about that are because the racism is just a huge key part of how individuals end up getting portrayed. And, um, and it's, like I said, it's very difficult to talk about. It's very important. We need to talk address responsible sexuality. What does it mean when we talk about these trainings if you're having anonymous sex with people? What is it saying about you, about how you relate to women? Um, what does it mean about having sex with women who are drunk or on drugs legally as well as ethically? And, um, and, and another really important part is the bystander part. What is your responsibility if you see other team members behaving in ways with women um, that are inappropriate? Um, so part of this comes into the, the student-athlete status as both a privilege and a burden the privilege being that it's a testimony to your athletic abilities, it's a testimony to your intellectual abilities, and there are perks on campus, but also to remember, like it or not, student um, athletes represent their teams and university and colleges in ways that non-student athletes do not. That the burden is if a student who is not an athlete rapes or sexually abuses or is charged with, even if they, um, didn't, he didn't rape, in a dorm, it's not going to have the same consequences and profile as somebody who's member of a team. That the team members have this burden that the other um, students do not. The misinformed assumptions, and I, I think with what Mr. McKenzie said, it's very important to talk about that. A lot of assumptions that people have about athletes of, oh, they're just here because um, they can play this sport. They and you know, and I think we just really need to look at. What are these burdens that athletes have and this resentment that other students may have about athletes in their, their classes or other faculty may have, assuming, oh, you really weren't smart enough to get here, you just got here, or you're not really making a grade in this class. That, what are the assumptions there that is a huge burden to make, have assumptions made about somebody's intellectual ability that are not based on reality? Um, and finally, and this is another thing I think is really hard to talk about, is sexual abuse. Alcohol and drugs do not cause sexual abuse, and that's probably one of the most controversial things I feel like I have said in all of this. People's basic values don't change when they're high or drunk. That um, I, may drink, I may drink and sing karaoke in a bar, but I don't drink and hit my child. I don't drink and kick my dog. That I may do some things that I don't have the courage to do, such as you know singing karaoke, but I don't um, otherwise. 
but I'm not going to go out and roll down my window and yell racial epithets when I'm I'm drunk. I'm not that to to say that people suddenly have a completely different value system on what is right or wrong. We have to be really careful about that. And and again, I, I don't have justice time to do justice to this, but I do think it's extremely important to talk about this. Most of us have a pretty clear idea of what's right and wrong when we. Um, are in some kind of altered state. So we have to really be careful about that. At the same time, it's very important to remember that individuals are at higher risk of sexual abuse and other kinds of victimization, including males, when they are drunk or using drugs. Uh, and research plays that out. Um, alcohol and drugs are often used as an excuse for abusing. In this way, when somebody sexually abuses, a lot of times, when it's an excuse, they'll deny responsibility for it, and they'll say, well, I wouldn't have done this if I weren't using um, alcohol and drugs or it wasn't in this situation. The other way is that they'll use it as a justification, and here they deny the wrongness of it. They say, well, I was drunk, the victim was drunk, so there's nothing really wrong with it. So these are the ways that alcohol increases the likelihood, but we have to look at how that gets played out and how much of it is the alcohol and how much it is the socialization we have about what people think when people are using drugs or alcohol. And then with the, uh, there's a social, cultural, sexist, no win. The men who, are, who sexually abuse when they are using dr um, drugs or drinking are often seen as less responsible or culpable by society, whereas the victims are seen as more responsible for their rape. So it turns into this um, sexist um, double whammy there. And again, I would just like to end with climate matters, and this is good news. We can change our climates if we have the right people. We, we are committed to having the right values in place, and we are committed to bringing athletes to the university that we want to have the right values, that we want to have get good educations. Um, we can do this. We, and you, um, the athletics leadership and the university leadership need to work together and make this and do this and do right by their athletes as and their athletes' safety, as well as everybody else on campus. Thank you very much. Thank you. Next panelist is uh, Don McPherson, who is executive director of the Sports Leadership Institute at Delphi University. Thank you. Um, I'd like to begin by thanking the commission for, for taking on and listening to um, the perspective of student-athletes and also recognizing who student-athletes are, um, not just on our campus, but in our society. And I just came from a school, in addition to uh, running the Sports Leadership Institute, which involves high school and elementary and community-based uh, sports in New York. Uh, I do lectures on college campuses around sexual violence and, and dating violence and, uh, and other types of behaviors and have been for a number of years, more than 18 years. I just came from a school recently where three freshmen on a uh, cross-country team were on Facebook. One had a beer in her hand, the other uh, two were also involved in a hazing incident at that school. Uh, the, the pictures from Facebook ended up on the front page of the newspaper. Um, that team has been suspended for the year. The morning I was leaving um, at 4 a.m. checking the news, one of the basketball players on that team was stopped in a traffic stop and found with marijuana and spent the evening in jail. Both of those student athletes, or that group of student athletes, um, and the discussion around that campus was, once again, here we are looking at the poor behavior when you talk about choices and values of student athletes. Um, the um, three young women who were on the cross country team were on the front, the homepage of badjocks.com, the website devoted to the uh, bad behavior of, of athletes that, that we like to obsess about and not focus on people like Kareem here who um, obviously has shown uh, what student athletes are in, in our totality. Um, the problem with, with the, what I just described to you, as I spoke to people in that particular athletics department, as I look at the problems of the behavior of student athletes across the board, is not necessarily the behavior of the student athletes, but it's the isolation of the athletics department that doesn't allow the resources or the information to be shared between coaches and people on campus or people in the greater public. And we tend to think that these problems are student athlete problems. And the reality is that they are not. Facebook is not a problem that all of a sudden athletics departments have to deal with because it was created for athletics departments. Most people on the athletics department don't know what Facebook is. But people on campus do. And they're struggling with it and they're dealing with it. But it slaps the university in the face and it slaps the athletics department in the face when it happens to student athletes. Let me just say one, one other thing about the burden on athletics. 
if a journalism student writes a scathing racist um, commentary in the school newspaper on affirmative action, it's not, a, it's not an indictment on the journalism department or those professors. If a chemistry student learns to build some sort of device that ex makes the toilets explode, as from, from those of us who remember Animal House, the, the old exploding toilet um, gag, that's not an indictment on the chemistry department. But if a student athlete do, does something, we indict the coaches, we indict athletics, and we indict athletics departments, as if somehow that's what caused the behavior. And I want to pro provide some perspective on where that behavior that we see with our student athletes is coming from. When we talk about the student in, uh, po population in general, we ask young people, especially on college campuses, to make good decisions with either bad information or no information. We used, as Frank talked about earlier, just say no, don't drink and drive, don't do this. The reason why they don't know Nancy Reagan and don't just say no is because it did not work. It doesn't work. We don't talk honestly with our children about sexual behavior. We don't talk honestly with our children about alcohol, and yet we promote it every single place they turn. And we promote it to them because we are like drug dealers. If we get our kids hooked on this stuff early, they will be consumers for a lifetime. And so we don't talk to them honestly. We expect them to make good decisions with no information. When it comes to our student athletes, not only do we expect them to make good decisions with no information, we also expect them to ignore the culture from which they come. We expect them to ignore all the messages that they've received, especially those that are wrapped around the industry of sports. And we expect them to make good decisions and be stellar above all of that. And I just want to... Um, make a comment about, Frank put the picture of the little boy up there with the baseball in his hand. And, and I want to just take you through what that little boy will see in the course of his lifetime, whether he becomes a student athlete or not. First of all, if he is an athlete and he's involved in youth sports, he is not involved in the altruistic youth sports that most of the people in this room remember. He is going to be involved in uh, travel leagues and teams and, and mandated performances that, that say that the individual is more important than the team and the town, by the way, when you come to travel teams. And that he's going to be coached by a specialized coach. He's not going to play a number of different sports where he's going to gain uh, an understanding of, of transferable skills. He is going to learn one sport. And he's going to be told by leagues, by Little League Baseball, USA Soccer, USA Hockey, that you have to specialize in this sport. It's not about being a fit young person. It's about being in that track to become a professional athlete. First thing. Second thing, when it comes to the issues off the field, at 10 years old, that boy is going to be sold and was sold, our boys were, Kobe Bryant by the NBA and by Nike as the guy who plays Nintendo in the, in the lobby of the hotel. He's a good kid. And Kobe Bryant, because of his behavior, forced a lot of parents to have to talk to their 10-year-old and 8-year-old, 9-year-old boys who were walking around with a number 8 jersey on about rape before they talked to them about intimacy or relationships or, se or, or responsible relationships. At 15, that boy is going to be, because he's inspired by the, the worldwide leader in sports, he is going to be having poker parties because their parents believe that's good, safe, wholesome fun, cultivating a gambling problem. And by the way, just a note to the commission and to higher ed and athletics, if we think that the steroid issue or the alcohol issue is bad, wait until the gambling issue hits our campuses that we have cultivated a, 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 a generation of kids who are gambling at home because it's safer than being out in the streets. And parents are promoting that. By the way, let me just make one other point about, about the, the drug use and performance-enhancing drugs, um, um, ADHD is a problem that I think was created by pharmaceutical companies because we want to drug our children because that's a performance-enhancing drug. It will help you better in the classroom. Everything, every other commercial we see is a drug commercial telling us this will help you perform better at work, this will help you perform better in the bedroom, that's wrapped around our athletics? How many uh, Viagra, Cialis, and, and, and performance-enhancing drugs do we see nonstop on every sporting event because it's targeted to men? Another point, going to that, that, that boy, as he gets older, and now he's, let's just say that young boy, once again, he's, he's, he has the Kobe Bryant thing, he has the gambling thing, now, and that's the safe thing that, that our young boys and girls are growing up with. If he's 18 years old and he is on the verge of becoming a college athlete, he knows that Terrell Owens' behavior will get you the money quicker than Marvin, Harris's, Marvin Harrison's work ethic. 
We know Terrell Owens. He was, and, and, and people say, well, the NFL is upset about Terrell Owens. No, they're not. When, when Terrell Owens is doing all that he was doing in the midst of all of his rants and his, his asinine behavior, the NFL put him in a locker room with a naked woman from uh, uh, Desperate Housewives on the opening of Monday Night Football. Our young people see that. And when you talk about values and choices, that's the values and choices they see the adult world making. They come to our campuses, and again, with our student athletes, we expect them to ignore the, ignore the culture around them. What do they see in the social culture when you talk about violence and alcohol behavior? They see fraternities having parties like CEOs and office hoes. Or here's one that's even more directly to, to student athletes. Pro athletes and trophy wives. These are theme parties on college campuses that are going on on a regular basis. They see ladies' night that should be illegal because it flies in the face of laws around alcohol and consent, where women are encouraged to come drink for free because they know men are going to show up. And we expect our student-athletes to ignore this culture that they live in. And if one student-athlete, and you know, I always say if, if one student-athlete, you know, going back to the your question about um, the behavior, the violent behavior of student-athletes. If there was a student-athlete or a professional athlete, you take all the, 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 the aggregate of, of athletes in our culture, was charged with a domestic violence charge one, one a day, that would be a lot. And we would be up in arms. I guarantee you there are more than 365 restraining orders in a, in a square mile of this building in the past year. And that's this building, not the entire nation. When you look at the, 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 the gravity of violence against women, the gravity of violence in our culture, and when we see that Kobe Bryant a year ago was defending himself, now you know what people are asking about Kobe Bryant? Can he beat Wilt's number? All you have to do is be able to fill the bucket, and it doesn't matter if you do those things. And I think one of the big problems with all this is that we have created for various reasons, this isolation on our college campuses that doesn't see that our student athletes come to our campuses with all of these different influences, all these different uh, uh, things that they're taking in from the culture, and then we expect them to be above reproach. We expect them to be able to do it perfectly. And the reason why I applaud the commission is because you did such a tremendous job of, of, of looking at uh, presidential control and, and, and looking at the entire system. But the thing that we can't control, and that's the beauty of why we're here, and that is the, the human spirit, the human spirit that comes to our campuses. And it's uncontrollable when you bring an 18, 19-year-old, 20-year-old kid to our campus. And so the challenge is great, and we have to listen to student-athletes. We have to listen to student-athletes across the board and engage them in the process. And I just want to make one last uh, point about engaging uh, student-athletes and, and the athletics being engaged within the university. We have to recognize, as much as we don't want to, that Athletics and higher education, if it continues to remain there, has an educational responsibility to student-athletes. And if we ignore that they are part of a multi-billion dollar industry, we, these problems will continue to happen. And, and every discussion that we have when it comes to student-athlete behavior, and we talk about their values or we talk about their choices, is, is becomes punitive. It becomes after the fact. We miss the boat tremendously on the educational opportunities. We talk about paying athletes, point, case in point, we talk about paying athletes and we get so knotted up about someone might cheat and someone might lose out and someone might get exploited or someone might you know, go around the rules. The reality is, I knew, you knew, you know, that you're part of a multi-billion dollar business and a lot of people are making a lot of money off of what these guys do. And they know it. And we don't engage them. So instead of saying that, that we're not going to pay you, we're going to ignore that, we're, we're going we're to use that surplus and we're going to give it here or give it there, instead of making them realize that they're part of a business and there's a tremendous educational opportunity in, in, in that, and we miss it. We miss it by coupling athletics with the business department to make athletes understand how their money is being invested or how it can be invested. We don't ask them to pay, write a check, so they don't learn how to write a check each month for that, for that room and board. They don't learn those skills along the way, and we just take it for granted that they're going to leave our institutions with the wherewithal and the skills to be a part of professional sports or not once the dream is over. So I, I just offer that as, as a suggestion for the future that engaging um, the, the, the university uh, population and the greater population should not be brought on with fear. But as long as we remain isolated, it will keep us from some greater solutions. Thank you.
Thank you very much, Don. Uh, our last panelist is uh, Jamail Cornelius, a current football athlete at the University of Florida. Um, I'm a current football player at the University of Florida, and uh, I had an opportunity to be in the Mentors and Violence Program, the MVB program, uh, last March. And uh, I was just going to uh, talk about that. Um, it was very effective. Uh, when I think about it, um, the first thing that comes to mind is uh, an example that um, one of the facilitators used, and he told us to close our eyes and imagine the most important woman in our lives being beat and uh, not being able to do anything about it. And uh, as I was sitting there, I was like, wow. I mean, I couldn't imagine uh, the most important person in my life, my mother, being beat and me just watching and, and not doing anything. And um, the reality is a lot of my teammates um, were some way uh, affected by that. They may have seen it. It could have been their mom. But in some way or another, they were affected by that. And uh, I think at the beginning of the meeting, it caught everyone's attention, uh, just talking about that and how serious um, violence is and the effects that it can have, not just on you as an athlete, but as you, on you as a person in your life. And um, at the University of Florida, the, the summer prior to having this meeting, we, we, uh, we had a lot of issues. Uh, we had a lot of um, situations occur where uh, students were involved in violence in uh, a couple parties, uh, a couple clubs, uh, a couple women um, issues came up, and uh, Coach Coach Urban Meyer was hired. And uh, similar to what um, was talked about earlier with the climate, and I think his biggest issue was coming in was he wanted to change the climate, and uh, one of his ways was doing that was having us go through this program, and uh, the program was very effective. First of all, because uh, it was clear cut. Um, I don't think that student athletes need to be hit with statistics about uh, who's being raped or the amount of, of rapes that occur, it's just uh, information. I think they need to be hit with more real-life situations. And um, that what the program, that is exactly what the program did. They uh, told us what uh, battery is, sexual assault, sexual harassment. They didn't just read the definition. They gave us uh, scenarios. If you do this, you will be charged. And I think a lot of times... Um, the focus is more on information and defi definitions versus real-life situations. And um, I, when freshmen come in, and, I mean, it's basically I think, you know, you are going to be hit with this situation, and what values and what choices are you going um, to do when that situation occurs? And I think that, that one th that's one thing that the program was good at, was giving us a plan. Uh, I think prior to uh, the program, a lot of people were put in situations, and honestly, I I honestly feel they did not know how to react or they reacted in a way that they saw from um, the way they grew up or what they saw other people doing. And uh, I think the program was, was good at doing that. The second thing that come to mind was the program allowed for us to be open. Uh, it, was, uh, it, it was held on three different nights, so the team was split and uh, different groups went each night. But it was no coaches. It was uh, just, just the athletes and the facilitators, and uh, I think that created a great atmosphere because it allowed us to be open. It's not it's certain issues that's going on in campuses, uh, at parties, in the fraternities that I don't think student athletes are willing to talk about right in front of their coach. So it gave us a neutral, a neutral neutralization where we can be open and we just talk. I mean, they're not going. We we feel like we can trust them not to go to the media and say, well, this particular player said he did this or this situation occurred, can you believe what's going on? It allowed us to be open and to talk about the issues that, that are going on in uh, student-athletes. Um, I think the, the program was uh, very good at doing that. And I think um, just looking at it, uh, Coach Meyer, um, his philosophy, he talks a lot about core values, and one of his core values is treating women with respect. And I think that um, when we look at violence, um, it comes. I think it. I think that universities need to pay attention to the coaches a lot more, um, because when I was getting recruited, I really didn't see it as much as I see now. But your coach becomes a father away from home. So I think it all begins with making sure that the coaches have the core values and that they um, incorporate them in their programs. Because without that, um, the issues that that are faced will continue. And uh, athletes will fail at making good choices and having the right values. 
So I can't speak enough about how well Coach Meyer is coming in and teaching us about values. I mean, I I don't think a lot of programs are focusing on values and choices. They're more focused on scoring touchdowns and, um, you know, being a good athlete. But uh, Coach Meyer and his staff go to extreme measures um, not to focus on us as uh, athletes, but more so as men. And uh, I think that the frequency as which uh, programs like the MVP is done should be increased. Uh, that would be my only suggestion. Um, I'm all for uh, what it stands for. And I know that, I mean, when you talk about values and choices, I don't think that student athletes say, I want to go to a party and get in a fight and get arrested and be on the front of Sports Illustrated for being a complete idiot. I don't think they do that. It's like uh, Coach, I mean, uh, sorry, yes, Mr. McPherson <laughs> said, I think it's a lot of bad information and no information at all. So I just think that uh, student athletes need to be pounded with uh, things of that nature, with programs talking about values and choices. And I, I can stand here today and attest that uh, it does make a difference. If you look at the summer prior to this program and prior to Coach Meyer and his staff coming, the climate has completely changed. Um, I know we had an issue uh, with uh, fraternities and football players. It's kind of, you know, the thing she was talking about, the burden. And uh, that was one of the burdens on our campus. And uh, Coach Meyer made it a point. He went to every uh, fraternity house and took a couple players, and we kind of mingled with them. And uh, I think that's what it's all about, taking a proactive approach to, to stop the violence between other athletes, uh, student athletes, and you know, regular students and also women. So I think that uh, the more we we approach this issue with the openness and uh, genuine concern for the athletes, it would uh, continue to, to dwindle. Thank you very much. We will now have the commission members uh, who would like to kick it off. Chuck Young. Well, I did, uh, thank you, Cliff. I, I really am commenting on, or commenting on all of the what all three of the, the, those who have spoken have, uh, have reported, I guess it comes back to the Colorado situation more than any other because that's an example, I think, of uh, what the kind of worst of what, or at least maybe close to the worst of what occurs at other universities from time to time. Uh, one of the cornerstones on which uh, this commission has built its... Um, recommendations over the years has been presidential authority and responsibility. And presidents may not be able to uh, produce winning teams. They don't have much control over the win-loss record and so forth, but they've got control over the kind of situation that exists and that was reported here, and the kind of problems that was reported uh, that, that, has, that, that uh, uh, Coach uh, Urban Meyer has, has done so much to change at, at Florida, where I was where I was president when you were when you were first there, uh, and uh, I, I think this uh, commission has a responsibility at this point in time to remind presidents very strongly that these kinds of problems uh, are issues which they have to be concerned about and which they can resolve, and only they can resolve. This all starts from the top. If if the president is willing to take this uh, issue on head-on, it can be resolved. Bill Asbury and then Dita France. Just, just a, an observation, and, and Jamel really hit on it, and, and it was in part what I was asking Kareem about, and that is that this, this, uh, this sense of conflict on campus between athletes and non-athletes, whether it be with fraternities or whoever it might be, this is, this is the kind of things you described happen at all the major college campuses as Don McPherson's has talked about, and it'd be great if you could visit all those campuses and send the message that you just gave to us, and the two of you would go together and sort of deliver this message because it's a powerful uh, image for the women and non-students, uh, uh, non women and men who are on that campus. Athletes are isolated. In fact, I, I, I won't take the time to do it now, but if you think about the time that athletes have, if they, in fact, are going to class, and studying and practicing. They've got to squeeze in their social life and their sleep, and sometimes they have to make a choice between that. And, and other students do the same thing. But when they make the kind of choices that get them into situations, whether they start the activity or not, 
it's the athlete who's going to be on the front page of the student paper. Very often, we don't even know who the non-athletes are. Well, we know if, if, if Michael Robinson was in a, a, a conflict at a, an ice rink at Penn State, we know Michael was there. We don't know about the other 17 people who were involved. And this idea of, uh, of informing the athletes early with examples, I think, is, is the best thing that could happen to them. And I, I don't know about Kareem, but, you know, knowing these are situations you can get yourself into and here's, here's the, the, the choices that you have to make, and here's a, a process that you can use to make those choices. You may not always make the best choices, but here's a process that you can use it. For a 17- or 18-year-old, that would be terrific, and I think you're right. This MVP program ought to be something that is more generally available. I'm not, I'm not sure I know much about it or who offers it, but I will just say that your testimony is terrific. Anita DeFrance? Thank you. I think we are talking about, you were talking about rather as we listened, uh, issues that are rather intuitive. Um, as you said, Ms. Cornelius last, you don't want your mother to be beaten up. You know that. But the opportunity to put it in context is what had been missing prior to that. We're also talking about a sort of code of silence. That's what it's about. The women are not willing often to come forward because they know it will happen. It's like, oh yeah, sure, he raped you. You ask for it. And then all that happens and your, your case is dismissed, etc. The cost and all those things. So there's a code of silence. And within the various teams, as the professional players know, there's also this code of silence. How do we get at breaking that code so it's okay at the, at the collegiate program to talk about having the upperclassmen talk to you and having the other teams also take part in the MVP program. By the way, was it only for football, or did the other teams have access to that? So two statements, I guess, and one question. But Jamel, do you want to answer that first, that last question? Uh, was the MVP program that we went through was um, for strictly for the, the football, football team. Player. So, I mean, I think it should be available for all the athletic programs. At the University of Florida, we have uh, different speakers come in, and usually uh, – they go to all all the the sports. Every student athlete has to to go through it. But I know specifically the MVP program was for uh, the football team. Mm -hmm. Now on the code of silence question that Anita raised, I wonder if some of you might like to comment. Joanne, um, you know, I do think that code of violence or code silence. of silence, <laughs> code of violence, code of silence. Um, I think that is really important, and it kind of reminds me back to the other gentleman's point too of. What do presidents do? Like, and I think at CU, one of the things that happened was the way that the presidents responded to that enhanced that code of silence. Because they, they were definitely speaking out of both sides of their mouths. At the one time, they were feeling sorry for themselves and saying, this isn't fair. This happens at universities all over, and we're getting picked on. At the same time, they're saying it didn't happen, and these women are liars. And I mean, they're just terrible things that were being said. And it, to me, that... I, I feel like um, it, it's almost like this. Well, one of the things I feel like is the resiliency of the human spirit. I have to believe in that because I would just not, I would give up completely. But I feel so encouraged on things like the MVP program, but also just breaking down the walls between people to be able to talk to each other. Because I think even with, like I said, with these women with the Title IX lawsuit, I think even an apology from the university saying, we're sorry we didn't do, would have made a world of difference and they wouldn't have had a Title IX lawsuit. What these women wanted was for this not to happen to any more women. So I, I feel like if there were, and I, I was, um, had the privilege to um, talk with Mr. McPherson last night, and I was just saying, I feel like when I've gone and given talks on this on campus, sometimes football players will say, well, you don't know what it's like to be me. And I'm, I'm like, you're right. I don't know what it's like. to. I could never pretend that I know what it's like to be you. But the problem is we don't have those dialogues with, I mean, until really recently at CU. And it's really, I've learned a lot about the burdens of, of football players on campus that I was not aware of before. But I think the more that we can have these where it's not the athletes getting this training, even though that is important, but at the same time, what are these ways that we do this campus-wide, that we say rape and sexual abuse and intimate partner abuse is not just with the athletes. It happens other places, too. But um, certainly condemning women who report these 
enhances the code of silence yeah. by the, when the university does yeah. it. Don? I may just make one point about, um, actually two points, but one is about the MVP program, and I was director of the, that program for a number of years at, at Northeastern University at the Center for the Study of Sport, and uh, Peter Roby is here from the, from the center, and you will hear from him later on, and um, it is an outstanding program that has um, right now broad support from at least the Southeast Conference that, that um, the entire conference is doing the program for all of its student athletes. And so just a, a point about that program, just a further endorsement, I don't think you need more than, than what you've heard. Um, but the point about the code of silence is the NCAA was, was, was um, kind of looking out for graduation rates and, and student athletes being prepared before they came here. And so they created the clearinghouse to kind of look at what people are doing and whether or not they've qualified and whether or not they've gotten all their ducks in order. Uh, if we can reach down into secondary education for those reasons, we can reach down for secondary edu education on these as well. If we make it a priority in higher education, if these are the values that we expect from student athletes and from students, we can start to say that what we expect of our student athletes is that they come in with this understanding. That will begin to break the silence around some of the issues that we're dealing with. And I have to say that the problem of silence is getting worse. And with, with and I, I know that there's great debate with abstinence-only programming. Um, the word abstinence is not the problem. The problem is only. And when we stop talking to our students with a myriad of, of, of messages about how to deal with some of these issues, they become more vulnerable to mass media. They become more vulnerable to, to the rumor. They become more vulnerable to the more insidious voices, video games and others that are telling them how you treat women, video, um, music, music television. If, if, a, if the responsible adults stop talking, and which we are, we're, we're less and less open about some of these issues. Um, programs like MVP put issues on the table. I asked Jamal earlier, have you ever had that discussion prior to MVP? No. I asked student athletes and, and adults of all, when was the last time a group of men got together and talked about um, how we treat women, how we look at women, how we talk about women in their absence, and we just don't do that. And so that silence has to be broken long before student athletes get to our campuses, I believe. Thank you. Uh, Harding and then Judy. Okay. okay. Yeah, I mean, it, it, we're here to focus on athletics, but it's so clear from what every one of you are saying that this is more than uh, it, it, what goes on in the athletic culture. This is a university-wide, a, a country-wide, culture-wide problem. So my question is, what specific things do you think should be happening on campuses with all students, with all university administrations, presidents, uh, to to get at this. I mean, it, this is bigger than uh, the athletic department. Well, I, I, I think that's a great question, and I, I do think there needs to be this, like, I think the NVB program is just phenomenal, too, but um, I think in addition to that, there just needs to be more where it is bringing all of this together. I mean, I do, the, the issue for athletes, I think, is um, is somewhat unique, and I don't want that to be lost in this, but... It, again, it's it's like it's so unusual to have something where administrators are talking directly with the students, including the athlete students. And so I just think there needs to be a lot more about it. One of the things that CU started trying to do was implement this. It was called Campus 101 or College 101 that wasn't just dealing with sexual abuse, but it was dealing with how do we do these kind of life skills courses that some of the athletics programs are doing for all of the student body. So And it's not just about violence against women. It's about racism, it's about anti-Semitism, it's about classism, it's about sort of basic human decency, but it's also, what are your responsibilities as somebody that's sharing a planet with all these other people? And I, I just think that has to be part of it, because when we compartmentalize it, it makes it easier for every representative at the university, from the undergraduate student to the president, to compartmentalize it as well. Does anybody else have a thought? Yeah, I, I do. I think it's an excellent question. I think one of the, the biggest problems that we have, especially at the, the presidential and trustee level is that we don't want to acknowledge that violence against women on our campuses is happening. And if we talk about it, every campus will report. Check the reports. We've had maybe one, two sexual assaults rape a year. And there's a reason for that. Campuses more than ever are tuition driven. Women are going to college more than men. It's, it's simple economics. We're not going to talk about the reality of the threat to, to, to women on college campuses, and we're not going to acknowledge that it's happening on our campuses because then I have to compete with the next university. 
And so I've been on campuses where I was going to testify on behalf of, of violence against women on college campuses, and I was on a panel with the Cleary family and was called in by my university president and, and the chief of police who didn't want me to talk about the reality of violence against women on college campuses and how the universities have to be, be so more how responsive do we get around to that. that? I think it begins with, as I just said, higher education needs to, you know, the, the United States military takes a lot of heat for violence in the military and violence against women. I can tell you the United States military has been more forthright, more forthcoming, more aggressive in addressing the issue of violence within the military against women than higher education. I worked with the Justice Department a couple of years ago trying to convene a group of college presidents to talk about the issue. We couldn't get them together. It wasn't a priority. And so higher education needs to acknowledge the fact that it is happening. And alcohol as well. Absolutely. Harding yeah. Yeah. Carter? No, much as I like listening to myself talk, you've just answered what I wanted, except one question. Um, this really has to be a sustained over time program. I love individual success stories, which are almost the best way to ignore getting down to the reality of life. I mean, this has to be a costly, it's not a feel-good thing, right? It's, it's not a feel-good thing, but it's not let me Let me just give a, like a brief perspective on the, what I do, the work that I learned out of working with MVP. I always talk about the issue of men's violence against women ending when men confront other men in the absence of women, when we confront the misogynistic and sexist attitudes. Um, I introduce it by saying, what's the worst insult men have ever heard um, when they were boys? That little boy, you throw like a girl. Right? That l l fundamental understanding, that the, that's the worst thing you can be called. It begins with addressing the attitudes that see women as less than. It begins with addressing the attitudes that goes back to, I'm not sure uh, if it was Kareem or Jamal who talked about what we expect boys to be, what it means to be a man, this very narrow understanding of masculinity. That's not a difficult discussion. That's an amazing and, and a fruitful discussion with men about what it means to be a man and how we respect our mothers, our sisters, our daughters. The sustained part of that discussion that you're talking about is similar to when I ask white people, when black people are not around, are you, talk, are you referring to black people as niggers and coons and all those things? No, then why is it that we as men do that when women aren't around? Why is it that we as men do it in front of women? And it's okay. So the, the part of the sustained uh, discussion that you're talking about is part of a social movement where we are more aware of the problem because we're speaking about it publicly, openly, and honestly. We're looking at the attitudes that not just lead to the violence, but as, as so many of you have, have pointed out, maintains the silence about it. Because if I stand up and speak out and I say it's wrong, I'm going to be called language number one that questions my masculinity, and number two, maintains the silence about it. And so that's sustained discussion uh, and the reason I always bring up racism in that is because it's happened. There is a precedent. And the precedent allows the, the, the African-American people uh, who, who are in this room to be here. It was a sustained discussion amongst white people that that behavior is inappropriate. I think um, I know I can speak on behalf of the commission that uh, I would like to thank the uh, panelists today for uh, uh, giving us this, these marvelous opportunities to learn uh, and to benefit from your presentations in our discussion uh, and the work of the Commission. Uh, these subjects are very critical. Uh, they are also, as you have just recently uh, pointed out, uh, reflect uh, what is happening in, in the wider society. And uh, I guess in an optimistic or idealistic vein, um, I would like to look forward to the day when uh, college athletics not only can be successful in dealing with these issues, but in the process, given the visibility of uh, college athletics, might in fact become uh, an instrument for impacting the wider society with regard to the possible solutions. So may I ask all of you to join in thanking the panelists. Yeah. Thank you for listening to this podcast from the Knight Commission on Intercollegiate Athletics. This podcast was from a recording of the Summit on the Collegiate Athlete Experience on Monday, January 30th, 2006. For more information on the Knight Commission, please visit www.knightcommission.org.